Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. On War On the Theory of the Art of War Sections 12 through 24. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark, and today we'll be discussing On the Theory of the Art of War, Sections 12 through 24. I had originally planned on doing this entire On the Theory of the Art of War section in one piece, and then when I tried to start taking the notes to do so, quickly realized that it was entirely too dense uh, in order to do such things. So that's why we have broken it into smaller pieces. In more personal wargaming news, before we get to the to the good stuff, I once played Death Guard, and I do no longer. I just I stopped feeling it, you know? I know they're one of the better performing armies in the uh, community, and thematically they're pretty cool in that they're disgusting and all that sort of thing, And but I just I stopped feeling it. You know, I just uh, didn't didn't necessarily want to play them anymore. And so when your heart goes out of something, your heart goes out of something. And uh, my buddy TF was willing to take them on in order to get a paint job. Now, if you guys have been on the Instagram, you will have noticed, hopefully, the knights that he painted up for me, which are absolutely gorgeous. And I recommend everybody check them out just, just at least once in your life because they're very good looking. And uh, yeah, he's going to be doing up my Admech army in exchange. So... I'm going to be focusing on the Dark Angels for the time being because I no longer wish to play with armies that do not have a codex in this edition because I don't want to develop bad habits and quote-unquote rules and combos and that sort of thing that are not going to transfer over once the codex is dropped. So I will play Gene Stealers relatively soon because that codex is dropping early next year, which will be awesome. But the rest of them will have to wait. So, uh, Dark Angels, and particularly the Deathwing, because I love our Terminators, and that's going to be kind of my focus. And uh, another exciting addition to our media conglomerate thing is that we are going to be actually putting stuff onto the YouTube channel. I know that the YouTube channel has been completely defunct uh, ever since I set it up because I have no idea what to put on it. Uh, But now I have things to put on it in that we're going to start filming... Uh, the games that I play. I won't necessarily say that the quality is going to be the best at first. Like we're going to be, of course, recording with a phone and the terrain is not painted. I do have a battle mat, which is cool, but I've, I've got a bunch of unpainted terrain. Um, a lot of our armies are also unpainted, except for turkey feathers. You'll see a, some gorgeous models off of him. But uh, yeah, you're going to be looking at a lot of gray plastic, but hopefully tactically and uh, just kind of learning as we go. And I'm, I'm still not perfect with the rules either. My uh, personal exposure to ninth has been rather limited. So this has been a very 
uh, good learning for me too, just to make sure I'm not one of those people being like, well, lost edition, which is the most obnoxious thing in any hobby. But yeah, they're fun. I recommend you check them out. Uh, so far, we will have uh, hopefully three up by the time that this airs. Probably one or two, but hopefully three, somewhere in there. And uh, hopefully doing some more as we go on. And this is going to be a warning against perfectionism real quick. I have been putting off that uh, 12 Shots video for a long time. Those of you who were with us from season one will know how long it has been that I've been talking about this 12 shot video. Part of the reason it hasn't been filmed yet is because I wanted it to be perfect. Wanted the light to be perfect, the setting to be perfect, the clothing to be perfect, the um, just everything. And so I was making it way more complicated than it needed to be. And what it needs to be is just a simple means of conveyance for these forms, which is pretty easy to do. It doesn't take a whole lot of serious effort in order to do that. But yeah, I just need to set aside my perfectionism and get her done. So with any luck, those will be up as well. But these these games I had recently, man, they were, they were just so good. I had a, a really good little uh, down and out with Toto and his, his Grey Knights. And then had a, a really brutal and close match with myself and Kaji. And then tomorrow I'm going to be playing a game with TF. And yeah... It's been, it's been highs and lows, it's been losses and victories, and nail-biting intensity. So, I recommend you check it out. And also, we're just... Oh, 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 that was the other thing. That was the other thing I want to mention. The YouTube channel is going to be a bit more rough. Unedited, for the most part. It's just going to be the clips of what's going on. And in this, you might hear a bit more swearing than happens on this show. I know we don't really swear on this show, but the on the YouTube channel, there will be some just because uh, it's going to be a bit more raw in footage-wise. And as well-behaved as I try to be when I'm speaking on this show, let's just say I was in the army and leave it at that. So if you, if you want to go watch it, that's awesome. And we I, I absolutely welcome you to do so. But just understand that it's, it's going to be a little bit less <laughs> uh, put together. Let's put it that way. One more little PSA before we go. Uh, we are going to be taking a short break over the holiday season. Uh, my wife and I are going to be traveling a little bit, and we're going to be heading down to California for some fighting. So you will not hear from us until late January, early February time frame, when we'll, I'll be back from Battle for the Ring and actually have some good stuff to talk about in terms of, like, actually being there on the field and interviews with folks who are there. I'm, I'm very excited about this. And in part, this is due to the generous uh, Patreon supporters that we have, the uh, cash that we've been able to raise because of their uh, contributions are helping us to go and achieve these things. So um, if, if that's something that you want to do, if something you want to contribute to, just know that that money will go towards us uh, going cool places and doing cool things and being able to talk to you all about it. So... Once again, though, we're not going to be back until like early February-ish. So uh, from all of us here at The Art of Wargaming, let me just say happy holidays. I hope that you and your loved ones are uh, happy and safe and everything is good there. And look forward to seeing you in the new year. All right, now that that's all out of the way, let us get down to business in our first section and talk about the difficulty with theory.
Let me just start off this section by very much agreeing with the first point that Clausewitz makes here in this uh, section 12 that we're starting with today. And the point that he is making is that all attempts at theory are open to objection. That means his attempts at theory, Sun Tzu's attempts at theory, Frederick the Great's attempts at theory, my attempts at theory are all open to objection. None of them can be perfect and, and apply to every single situation. And of course, things change. You know, situations on the battlefield, situations within warfare itself, with the way the game is played, with the people who are involved, all these things are liable to change. So a theory that works in one place, in one circumstance, doesn't necessarily work in another. So, as he's saying here, all attempts at theory are open to objection. They're all progress, right? They're all progress toward the truth. Every, every time that we're able to rehash the idea, we get a little closer. It's like with science or any other science, really. Military science is like any other science in that people make their hypothesis. It is tested in the field. It is confirmed one way or another. And then, of course, there's the peer review aspect. So in these ways, theory, military science theory, can be very much summed up in the same way. And we're always making calculations with varied quantities. Again, something that works in one particular pace with one particular set of group and, and the numbers that they have, those calculations are going to be different than another place, in another situation. So we have to be making these calculations on the fly. There's no perfect way to calculate them ahead of time. And of course, it's, it's even more complicated because of the fact that war, war gaming, any of this stuff, is not one-sided. We can only control what we're doing. We can prepare our forces. We can practice. We can make sure that we are in the best position that we can be. What ultimately, this is not a one-sided activity. What our opponent does, what our opponent brings to the table, if you will, is not something that we can necessarily plan for, even if we know them, even if we've gone up against them before. People change up their tactics. Think about this uh, game that I had with Toto recently. It won't hurt my feelings if you disagree with what I say. I don't think it would hurt Sun Tzu's feelings if you disagreed with what he said. Machiavelli, maybe, but the rest of us are okay <laughs> by, by coming up with your own opinions. That's what the whole point of this is. Because theory has some flaws. As uh, one, of the, one of the flaws that it has is that it excludes genius. Theory is made for regular people fighting in regular circumstances with these measured amounts. It does not and cannot take into account the idea of genius. Genius is raised above the rules. These are people who see the rules, they see the limitations that are there, and they shatter through them. We all know them. We all know the, the stars of our particular field, the, the people who have achieved more than anybody else because they've, uh, they've figured out the way to abuse the rules. Uh, well, not necessarily, but they've figured out a way to make the rules work for them, right? Because theory only shows us why and how. It's kind of an after effect. As we were talking about in the last episode, the want for theory comes from the study of the past, from looking at our past exploits and what we were able to achieve and trying to achieve it again. So theory shows us the why and the how. It doesn't necessarily show us the way forward. Theory untested isn't really that great. But of course, it's these minds who can, who can move it forward. And theory should never oppose the mind. Just because something is theory, just because it's the way something has been done, 
doesn't mean it has to be the way things are done going forward. And if a situation or a matchup or whatever the case may be flies in the face of whatever theory we're practicing with, well, then that theory needs to be thrown away. It's no longer useful to us. One of the big things that theory fails to take into account and really cannot take into account, no matter how hard we try, is the moral qualities on the field. Uh, we have these mechanics, we have these rules, we have the ability to move our army in a certain way, let's say on a, on a tabletop. You know, I know what distance these guys move, I know what firepower their weapons put out. And these are uh, qualities, mechanics and rules that I can have down pat. But it's difficult to take into account the moral quality. Am I going to be on tilt? Is my opponent going to be moving faster than I intend them to move? Are they going to be more defensive than I intend them to be with my plan? These will twist theory because these mechanics and these rules turn vague in the face of moral impressions, even more so when we're dealing with physical wargaming. And in this particular case, there's all sorts of big talk. People can talk the talk, but then when you get to the field, there's, there's a very much a change at that point, because these moral impressions, these, these moral qualities cannot be excluded from our plans. Of course, when we're talking about 40k, there's also a iron hard, ironclad way of representing it, which is with the actual morale. You know, you can have units break and, and fall away, and it's not something that we necessarily plan for. And of course, within something like Belagarth, when you have newer people, or even older people, you can get phased. We can get uh, on tilt, or whatever the case may be. And so in this way, we know that war, or gaming, any of it, is directed not only against matter, not only against their army, against their weapon, against their shield, against their person, but also against their intelligence. We're fighting another person on the mental level as well as a physical level. And then if we're, if we're self-confident, if we are sure of our ability to perform in these situations, well, then we have a sense of self-power. If our army is, is very well practiced, then we have a sense of self-power. If we've got a good crew that we've been working with for a while and we know can accomplish awesome things, that gives us a sense of self-power. But how well does that sense of self-power hold up when we're dealing with a, a surprise attack, some sort of ambush or some sort of flank? It might be something where we have a great deal of confidence moving in but when something kind of goes awry, because in many cases, why would we plan for a surprise or an ambush or a flank? Those things are generally outside of our war plan. We don't want to be flanked or ambushed for that matter. And so when it does happen, how do we recover? How do we retain that sense of self-power, even though this illusion of invincibility has been broken at that point? So even though we can try to make sure that we are in the best preparedness that we can be, that we've trained in various scenarios for different ideas, for different, uh, uh, scenario, yeah, for different scenarios and different things happening. We also need to make sure that we are um, leaving flexibility in the plan, in, a, in account for these moral qualities. And of course, another principal difficulty when we're dealing with a theory for the conduct of war is that different people using it are going to apply it in different ways. It's not like everybody who's reading Clausewitz thinks about it in the same way that Clausewitz does. And then on the tabletop or in, on the field, they will then apply the theories exactly as Clausewitz would have. Of course we can't. Of course that's not the way things work because we all think differently. We all have different personalities, different minds, different approaches, methodology. And 
in this way, we're going to apply different ideas, different sciences, in our own unique ways. And theory can't necessarily account for that. I can't interpret or know how you are going to be taking whatever theory we're presenting here and applying it to your games. I can tell you what I think. I can analyze it from, from everything that I'm looking at, and I can try to explain it in a way that kind of brings things together. But when it comes down to it, if you at home are reading the same text that I am, you may have a completely different view of this material than I do, or have a different way of applying it. One of the most fun things about this job, about the interviews I've been doing recently, is that occasionally I have a guest who's very much interested in doing some sort of book study with me, like Juniper, for instance. So we get together and we read the chapter together and we'll go through a few lines and then check in and be like, okay, what do you think about this? Like, how does this apply in your mind? And it's so cool because even though I study this stuff for a living and have for a long time, and I very much love and am invested in it, I can't see every perspective. I can't see every, every single way to look at this material. And so when I'm speaking with other people, it really helps open up these different perspectives, these different uh, ways of approaching the material that I may not have considered before. So this is, and this kind of, again, illustrates the point where I'm sitting there with Juniper or Angus or, or whoever, and we're reading through this material and each of us has a different interpretation. And that's the cool thing about this. So, uh, so again, th this is another problem for a theory though. We're all reading this theory. You think Clausewitz would have wanted it to come across in a certain way, but we all have our different interpretations. So it is good to remember that in these particular situations, uh, a little bit of looseness is involved. There's a reason that nobody really who, who knows what they're talking about does ironclad theory. You have to do this and then this and then this. Because there's always the individual interpretation. Now, with more modern systems, within systems, it's pretty easy to be able to put, into, to put a system into place. For instance, the United States military, or, or really any other professional military around right now, very much trains its soldiers to think and interpret things in the same way. And of course, the way that those books read, these uh, you know, the military field manuals and such, they're like radio instructions for war, even more so than Clausewitz is. It very much goes through line by line what's to happen in this situation and, and this, that, and the other thing. And they're very specific. And they deal with particular checkpoint issues or room clearing. And so the theories, well, not theories, but methodology, can be applied the same every way because every soldier is trained in the same way. So they can interpret this very similarly. But this isn't necessarily theory. This, again, is a methodology. It's a system for warfare. It's not necessarily an overarching idea that conveys large concepts. It's about a very specific action or a very specific way of approaching a problem. And as we see, it does have flaws. You know, America lost the war in Vietnam. We lost the war in Afghanistan. So even our impressive military machine has flaws like anything else does, like the Soviet machine did, or the Romans, or the Persians, or whoever the case may be. There is no perfect system. Or at least there isn't yet. Let's wait until the AI takes over, and then they might have something to say about it. <laughs> right? So if we're looking at these moral forces, we've been talking about how they can negatively impact us, right? In terms of either fear on the field, or leadership check, or any other means that, that there's an impact to the mind that is relatively negative. But there are also positive effects 
that we're not necessarily going to, that we can't necessarily account for when we're dealing with theory. And one of those, of course, is the hostile feeling. Where's it coming from? Where is this urge to fight coming from? Well, that's not something that a theorist can, can theorize about. It's not something that can really be talked about beforehand because I may be talking about a certain type of theory. And if I'm a saying that it applies in every single situation the way that it applies in the way that I'm looking at it, and then we're in a, a situation where there's a hostile feeling that is different, they're either less hostile than me or more hostile than me, that is going to affect the way that that theory is played out on the field, the way that it is played out on the board. Because, of course, we have the, the personal, right? We have a, a, this hostile view comes from something. It either comes from a, a personal reason to be there, whether, as we were talking about with the French, there was this feeling of threat. There was a very real threat to Paris. They were going to put it to the sword. That's a very, very, very <laughs> good moral. Uh, it gives good morale because you're joining up to defend, right? This hostile view is, is to repel the invader. However, this can be expounded upon even more when we're talking about national hatred. Hatred of a large group or, or a large entity of people. And this has been used uh, for, for extremely violent effects all throughout history. You know, there's the Christians versus the Muslims, the Jews versus the Muslims, the French versus the English, the Habsburgs versus the... Protestants versus the Catholics. All throughout history. This idea of national hatred has been used, and it's it works. That's the thing. It works. When, you, when we are able to burn people up into a fury, it absolutely drives forces harder. That's why propaganda is a part of every single military conflict that's ever existed. War movies, propaganda. I mean, a lot of them are, like, I watch war movies like, <laughs> like any other person that loves military science. Just about every one that comes out, I, I go and give it a view. I enjoy them. But I also understand that, in a way, they're propaganda. Not nearly as, as overt as it has been sometimes in the past. But if you look through all throughout history, this has been something that, that is obviously cashed in upon. Rulers know about it. Rulers know that this national hatred works for them. Now, sometimes it's absolutely legitimate. The French, as we've been studying, their national hatred for anything old, for the old regimes... Like, these revolutionaries are all, all totally against it. Of course, they're polarizing in that the uh, counter-revolutionaries are going to hate the revolutionaries. And, and all these things drive toward a particular explosion of violence. If this hostile view isn't there, then it drops morale significantly. If we've got, like, a mercenary army, for instance, people who are there to fight but not necessarily there to fight for a reason, this morale, this moral quality is not going to be there. This hostile view, this hostile feeling, which really drives a whole lot of military success, won't be there. So again, it can be individual, though. We've got like retaliation or a vengeance idea. Again, they killed my brother. Or, or my, my farm was burned down. This idea of personal involvement in what's going on. And this uh, against orders. There's, there's a huge uh, difference there. You know, again, if I'm coming into this and I am motivated to be there, there is some personal reason. Again, this idea of vengeance is the reason why I'm there. It's going to motivate me so much more to accomplish anything in the conflict than somebody who's just issuing orders. Right? You know, go forward. Get in there. And so in this way, I'm, 
kind of coming back around to the hatred thing, I am absolutely not advocating for us to hate one another within our communities. This is different. We're not, we're not two nations that are going to war. Obviously, getting along is the way that we build up our communities, these various networks of people. We depend on one another to play the games that we love. Actually destroying one another is not necessarily in anybody's best interest. So when we're talking about national hatred, let's talk maybe about friendly rivalry instead. Again, one of the examples that I love to use is that whole Guelph Urukai thing that, you know, after the Urukai found out that they had been betrayed, the fighting was so much fierce. Ur. <laughs> so much fiercer on the on the field because of it. You know, this uh, this personal vengeance idea. But of course, there's other things that inspire a hostile feeling as well. You have ambition, right? That's one of the things that's always inspired a hostile feeling in me. It's not that I necessarily hate my friends. Well, no, I don't <laughs> hate my friends. And I don't hate people from other realms or other units or anything. But I do get a hostile feeling because, of course, I want to achieve more. I want to be better on the field. I want to be better on the boards. I want to be able to accomplish things, as I'm sure most of the people listening to the show do. I'm sure that you have ambitions as well. And that probably engenders a, a hostile feeling or that, that hot-bloodedness. And then, of course, there's just the love of power. Some people are just in love with power, and this can also generate this hostile feeling. And it's important, because this is one of the most important more morale forces or moral forces when it comes to combating the other issues that one faces on the field. In particular, the impressions of danger, which require, of course, courage. And courage is another representation of this hostile feeling, but it's turned in a more positive direction. We all have an instinct against danger. There's, a, there's an impulse of some sort that we have that we don't necessarily know about until we're on the field. You know, if we get hit in the face, is our first instinct to reel away and nurse our nose? Or is our first instinct to lean into it and really deliver a shot back? This isn't something that we can really predict ahead of time. It's just what our body does in the moment. I wouldn't have told you that a bloody nose made me, like, not just, like, angry, but made me uh, a better fighter for five seconds afterwards. Because there's just this swell my instinct against it is to kind of lean into it and go after the danger. Of course, it's also perfectly natural to want to lean away from the danger, right? Most people, most intelligent, reasonable people, will try to lean away from the danger. That's their instinct, right? And even worse is the effect of understanding. You know, we may wince when somebody comes at our face the first time, but once we've actually been hit in the face, how much worse is that? I mean, even though I lean into, th into things, I close my eyes for the longest time, just kind of a hesitation. And of course, you can't really hit anything with your eyes closed, or at least not as well. So take that as, it, as you will. And there's people who, who are tr trying to get away from it who also close their eyes. And so this effective understanding can really get us down. It's the same thing on the tabletop. If we are wanting to win, if we have this drive to win... But then there's this danger, you know, one of our units is threatened or our, one of our main units, like a tank, gets blown off the board before we can use it. What's our instinct in that manner? What, what does that do to the effect of our understanding, knowing that that tank was, for instance, probably vital to some sort of effort, vital to some sort of offensive or attack that we were planning on doing? This understanding can sap at our courage. And there's a nobility to courage, right? It's about rising above 
Courage is looking into danger and deciding that we want to control ourselves in a certain way. Whether it's keep ourselves together or keep ourselves on the field at all, courage is the ability to take a step back and say, I'm going to approach this, but I'm not going to do it with stupidity. Again, anybody can rush in like a berserker, but that's not necessarily courage. That's just anger. Courage is the ability to compose ourselves in the moment of stress. And of course, courage is very useful as well. Uh, just like propaganda nurtures the hostile feeling, also uh, countries will try to nurture this courageous idea because a courageous soldier or unit is far more useful. You can put them other places and you know they're not going to break and run away. So whether this is a group of you know Marines that you know are probably, you know if you've got five Primaris Marines in a group, they're probably not going to run away just based on the leadership qualities, the courageous, quote-unquote, nature of those particular units, they're probably not going to be running away. If we're dealing with a, a thing, a guardsman, a little bit different. So, courage against danger, against these impressions of danger, it's important. And of course, that hostile feeling uh, feeds into that. But what is the extent of this, of this danger? What is the influence of this danger? Because there's a lot of different ways that it can approach us, and then it, this also affects the way that we receive it. So there's, of course, the individual threat, right? I'm standing against another fighter who wants to beat me. We're going to hit each other. The intention is to hit each other. So there's that individual threat, that danger there. Or I'm going against one person, you know, me versus another person on the board, you know, me versus a friend, me versus Toto, me versus Kaji the individual threat. And then there's the threat to all entrusted, right? So if I'm sitting there and I've got uh, my, my side of the line, I may be invested one way or another, but if I'm with my unit, for instance, if I'm with some triad folks, then that threat to the entire area where I am also influences my courage, my hostile feeling. Because it's, it's not just me, it's also a group of people that I probably care about, right? And as we start getting bigger, let's think in the 40K thing about our representation at like a tournament, right? It's not just that one individual match anymore. It's an entire collection of matches that drive us forward to a, a greater victory. And so there's a, a greater responsibility of failure there. If I'm just doing a match against a friend and I fail or I win, there's no real responsibility there. I don't really lose much. It's just practice. But if I'm going to a tournament and I'm winning or losing, these things have consequences to what I'm trying to accomplish. It's the same thing on the field. You know, if I, if I, if I fail, I do have a certain responsibility to the people that I failed. If I'm supposed to hold the left flank and I die, in a silly way that doesn't let my team react. Again, just just because you you quote unquote die or because you are taken out of action, does not mean just because we lose a unit, right? Does not mean that we have failed entirely. As long as the rest of the army, as long as the rest of the people have time to react because of what we've done, we did not fail. So it's good to die well, <laughs> I suppose is what I'm going after. So of course you got the individual threat to deal with, and then a group threat. And that, of course, depends on our attachment to that group. Uh, to be honest, if I'm fighting and it's just two random teams just picked from whoever's on the field, yeah, to be honest, I'm going to be less inclined toward making sure that that danger 
doesn't affect those around me, just subconsciously. I'm, I'm going to be more likely to go, you know what, I'm going to duck out and maybe leave this side to get demolished. But that's not as important to me because I can shift over here and this is kind of a worthy sacrifice for the overall victory. If those are my friends, if these are people that I know and work with often, then that's not going to be something that I want to do. My investment in that particular danger zone is going to be different than if I don't know them well. This also leads back to a historical concept, making sure that people have that good spirit decor. You know, people are, are comrades. They like each other. It's important. There's other feeling as well, besides just danger and hostile feeling. There are other feelings as well that will influence how we're fighting. Envy influences what we're doing on the field because it can either drive us to be bitter as we see people who are employing different methods, different weapons, and probably being successful with them, envy can make us bitter, or it can make us better as we seek to master those forms as well and rise above our opponent. Generosity is another feeling that one can have on the field. Generous in terms of perhaps making sure that our teammates are taken care of, and perhaps generous with hanging out, handing out the whoopings, right? Pride. Pride influences what we're doing absolutely on the field. Do we have pride in ourselves? Do we have pride in our unit, into our realm? Do we have pride in our abilities on the board? All these different things, pride is huge for them. Not too much. Too much pride is arrogance, and arrogance comes before the fall. And then, of course, there's humility, of course. Making sure that we understand that no matter what we think, no matter what idea that we have, it could be wrong. We could be wrong. We could, uh, of course, lose any fight. And so this humility keeps us better, I think, because it doesn't, it doesn't make us overreach. Fierceness, a little bit different than, than hostility, because fierceness is just the energy we're bringing, right? And then there's tenderness, caring again for one's unit mates, understanding our place in the world and being empathetic toward our opponent, not to such a point that we throw the game, but understanding where people are coming from and what they're going to be experiencing. There's more things, of course, that we can't take into account with theory. And as I'd said before, leadership styles or, or the mental processes or, or perceptions are going to influence that in a massive way. You know, if somebody's imaginative, they might not do very well with the precepts. They might get bored with the old maxims and precepts and perhaps, you know, be too, too loosey-goosey when it comes to their approach in war. But... If there's a change, if you've got some sort of tech shift or we've got some sort of, of new method that is being employed, then an imaginative commander is awesome because they're able to apply these things in ways that somebody who's a bit more set in their ways would not be able to. Of course, a flighty person is probably not great for interpreting much of anything at all because a flighty person is going to kind of break at the sign of any danger. But of course, this is a type of mind, you know, be, being flighty, being uh, unsure of where one is supposed to be. Inexperienced minds are going to bring certain things as well. I read a lot of these books back in high school. I read The Art of War. I read On War. I read The Book of Five Rings. And I thought in my teens that I understood them. And now that I'm reading them again in my 30s, I, I realize how little I understood before. I didn't have the experience. I didn't have the understanding in either, either a practical or a research-based way. And so this, of course, led me to lead in a certain way. If somebody is calm, there's another peculiarity of the mind. If somebody is calm, 
They might be good at kind of reserving themselves and not getting caught up in the moment, but also a calm person isn't going to necessarily have that drive, that energy that sometimes makes or breaks a situation. And then of course you've got somebody who's sage, somebody who is well-learned, a veteran on the field. This person cannot be phased because they've seen most things 10,000 times. But this also usually leads somebody to be less imaginative because they already know, quotations, what works. Sometimes, again, the rules change. Technology changes, the players involved change, the spirit decor changes, and in these situations, we need to be able to change with it. A person who is perhaps a veteran in this way might be slow to change because this is the way they did it before to achieve victory, so it must work again, right? And so, of course, with these different types of mind, with these different um, individual approaches, these are different leadership styles that always emerge out of here. And you're not going to necessarily see these differences until you reach the higher ranks. Because when somebody is a lower rank, when we're dealing with like sergeants or lieutenants or, you know, not realm leaders, not uh, unit leaders, these leadership qualities, these mental peculiarities are going to fit into a larger whole. They become far more pronounced when you see them in leadership. When you start seeing them in like captains or above, you definitely start to see it. And, and these unequal probabilities absolutely influence the course of events. You know, I may have an amazing army. I may have very well-trained soldiers and a fantastic officer corps. But if I've got a calm officer out there who is going against a fierce officer, that can't necessarily be something I've planned for. I can plan for who's where, but I can't plan for who they're going to go against. And this unequal probability between personality types and the way that they lead, this absolutely can, can influence <laughs> in a big way what's going on. You know, we can, we can plan for numbers. We can plan for this matter idea, but when it comes to personalities and how they're going to match up, that's not something that we can plan on. Another peculiarity is this idea of a living reaction. We've discussed this before, that all things in combat, all things in war, have a reciprocal action. It's not just a matter of I act. It's I act, and then you respond to that action, and usually escalate, and then I respond to that action. These reciprocals defy regular planning. We cannot, again, understand what our opponent is going to do ahead of time. We can have a pretty good idea. You know, we can have a theoretical guide to what we're doing. We can have an idea of what's worked in the past and try to approach that in a loose fashion. But again, we can't understand, we, like this idea of reciprocal action, it means that our plans have to be able to be changed, able to be flexible in the way that they proceed forward. And lastly, this third peculiarity is that we are uncertain always of data. All of our action is planned in the twilight. All of it is planned uh, with fuzzy vision. We're not able to quite see the clearest of pictures, the whole picture. And we rely on talent or fortune when we want for objective knowledge. We might be good at getting ourselves out of these situations. And so that might help us when we, we don't know what's going on. Or we might be fortunate. We might throw the shot we need to throw. We might get the dice roll that we need to make. And so we do the best with what we can, and we hope that that is good enough, I suppose. So, yeah, this is, this is some of the difficulty with theory, of course, as we've discussed. It, it's not something that can necessarily be applied perfectly every single time because, of course, theory has its limitations, as we've discussed. So 
to talk with me about some of these ideas that we've uh, looked at in this section, we're going to move now to a conversation with my good friend, Thumbs. on this episode to discuss the idea of combating uncertainty and kind of working against the natural difficulty that comes in forming theory and method is somebody you all know and love. Uh, back from a previous guest episode and back from being a co-host, we have uh, Sir Thumbs. Welcome I'm here. Indeed. I'm, this is the first time that you and I, I mean, we've seen each other since the vaccine started coming out, but like, this is the first time we've sat in the same room just the two of us getting to chat and I'm like oh my god zoom was very useful but it's so nice to see like faces texture and dimension and, and movement yeah and, and not having the sketchy stuff that has people like freezing and bizarre I mean that's entertaining I was always like I need to take some screenshots because people and I'm sure listeners you guys have seen this too with all the zoom calls that have been going on but these uh you know people get uh, derp yeah. Well, and on. it doesn't help that I live in the middle of nowhere, so my internet is, uh, it's fine. It works. It's, yeah, it's fine at best. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> good to see you, my man. Good man. So you are, you have been in a leadership position for a good portion of your career, if not all of it. I have been in a leadership position in some shape or form more years than not. I just finished up a term on the BOD. Before that, I was a realm leader for four years. I was a unit leader for several years. There is a better than even chance that I will be on the BOD or a realm leader again within the next couple of years. Like, So you, you know very well the stresses that are put upon leadership as opposed, like we all undergo stresses mm -hmm. and, and there's some uh, degree of vigor that is put onto anybody who does physical wargaming. But for those in leadership, especially those in form of higher leadership, there's a lot more responsibility at mm -hmm. play and there's a lot more uncertainty because as the one making the decisions, as a person who's on the ground floor of these things, you're having to make a lot of calls without all the information because you can never have all the information. Oh yeah, especially on a battlefield. How do you find yourself combating uncertainty? Because obviously you're good at it. You do it quite a bit. Um... The biggest part, I think, that helped me was just diving in and doing it. Sure. Uh, because one of the things that you and I were talking about a lot and that this section talks about is the uncertainty. And the only way to really deal with the uncertainty is to face it. Mm -hmm. And uh, you don't know how that's going to go until it's right there. Right. Like the, the the first time, the, in the same way, the first time you take a red shot. It's sure. the first time you, uh, and a lot of trial and error, which is one of the reasons I like wargaming. Of like, well, that did not work. We're back up. And let's go again. Um, and then a lot of it's, at least specifically for me, a lot of it is uh, trusting the people around me. Sure. Sure. I mean, and, and that, knowing the system, and especially like when we were in the same unit, it was mm -hmm. nice to be able to know that I, the person on my right was going to behave in this manner in reaction to what I was doing. And so even though the, the physical and verbal commands were still given in a lot of cases, they weren't necessarily necessary because we knew. Our final practice this season, we had a time, and it was only like four and four, so like it wasn't a huge set of battles. Right. 
But it was you and me and Turkey Feathers and Sir Tethian all together. And the three of the four of us came up together in the sport mm -hmm. and worked together and were in the same unit for the better part of five years. And we've been in the same... I mean, I've known most of you since I was 15. Right, right. Turkey since I was 19. So, ooh, big difference. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it helped in that one that we were able to just be like you knew intrinsically what happened with the other person but the re the way that we got there was facing just about every uncertainty we could think of sure and being like well what did we learn but also understanding that even though we may have a good plan a certain degree of flexibility is always called for mm -hmm. because we can never anticipate everything it's the truism that i can never get right and that you know uh the, the first the plan is perfect until first contact with the enemy no that's pretty close oh, okay i got that's it great. excellent good job me um uh, and i like used to read that in fantasy books and stuff and just kind of roll my eyes and then the first time I was on a big field. I was helping out the Urukai because some of my unit mates were there. This is my first Chaos Wars. No one knew who that long-haired dude from Montana was. So many years ago. That was the only year you could say that about me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for like two days of Chaos Wars, I was that long-haired kid from Montana, and it never came back. Um, but... We got about 10 feet away from my line hitting their line. And that's the exact moment I realized that I didn't know what was happening next. And I didn't know the people next to me. Right. And I pretty much just took the fetal position that battle. But like, um, <laughs> you know, there's my proud moment. But it, it's... That was the one I was like, oh, so that's what that truism means. Right. That's like... Well, and like you say, it's we can we can train as much as we... Are, are capable mm -hmm. you know in the home realm we can practice against people we can become familiar with them and everything we, we feel like we might be good at something and we may be very good at it but there's that moral quality of the first time that we're on a field and we're actually facing somebody that we do not know who perhaps is using a style that we are unfamiliar with and that can really trip a person i know it tripped me up I, I oh, started, I got wrecked. Yeah, I was feeling like I was pretty cool going to my first Chaos Wars. Pretty darn accomplished, you know? And then first battle got rolled. Second battle got rolled. And some of it was because I was freezing up. That moral quality had not been accounted for. The idea of being on a field of that size against people who were that good. It messes with you. First time I led the realm on my own in a realm battle, it was at a Thaw Brawl. Hmm. I absolutely froze up like three fights in a row. My brain, because there was good choices in all directions, but they were risky choices. Sure. And every time my brain was like, couldn't figure out which one to do and just didn't want to. And we got pinned every time just because, because I froze, I put us out of position. Like what was a good position was until it was not. And then it was definitely not. Sure. Um, what was called for was decisive action. Yes. Even if you die... You at least made a choice. And because this is Belagarth or 40k and you, you know, just put your models back afterwards, that's okay. You can, you can learn. Right. 
And your your style is different though. Like you had to kind of come into your own. Like you've been in leadership positions for a mm-hmm. while, but you've you've developed this very effective method of being able to lead people. And there's a lot of different ways to approach this. But what would you kind of characterize as your leadership? Like what you try to focus on? I try to figure out what people are good at, and then I set them up in places where they can do the thing. It is kind of admit like. Uh, a very hands-off approach for the most part. Making um, sure that you delegate intelligently. Yes. You know, if you are arching, I'm not going to be like, you need to do this and go here. You are a good enough archer that I trust you to do what you're going to do. Right. And even if it's wrong, you're going to do the best. But I can still be like, hey, that spear is wrecking me. Or like, that person is my biggest danger. If you get a shot, go for it. Mm-hmm. And if we have several people who know what they're doing and I can give them that freedom to move. Um, we were talking about it way back when, when I was still on, of we were talking about when they started doing different armies operating independently across a countryside. Sure. Same thing, but with like much smaller groups. Yeah, we're talking about like the, the battalion method that uh, mm-hmm. uh, Napoleon was able to make That's, such good Yes, use thank of. you. Sorry, this is, I'm like, I read that a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> we're actually dealing with the French Revolutionary Wars again, so mm-hmm. we've come full circle. Perfect. Um, but yeah, that idea of being able to have the independent um, entities that are able to work together to pin and uh, maneuver on the field in a far more um, versatile mm-hmm. and effective fashion and that's stuff that I have found works for me on the field and off the field of kind of put people in places where they'll flourish and trust them to do it. Sure. Uh, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the very regimented, we are forming this wall and we are just going to march down and, you know, do an altogether crush with very specific rules. I just, I don't function particularly well in those. And there's a time and a place for it. Mm-hmm. You know, I can, I just don't like it that much. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking across the field and you, you are looking at a force that has a, a bunch of spears and a bunch of arrows that are going to be coming your way, a shield wall is nice. Yeah. Making sure that they, that they don't good choice. the shots. Your, your poor two stickers and your spears aren't going to just get picked off. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. And, and, so, and so your leadership style is far more fluid. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, it can react very well to situations because, again, you're putting multiple people kind of in charge of their sectors. And so they're not waiting for you to dictate what they're supposed to do. Yeah, it's a very like, I need this done. How you do it is up to you. So I imagine that that does require competent people to kind of give these these. Uh, oh, yeah. When it goes badly, it goes really badly. And the downside of this is that. This style is it's a lot harder once the fight has started to readjust. Sure. If I send someone being like, I need you to take that. And then I'm not in communication with them as much afterwards. Like, you know, you try, but as opposed to, I mean, you and I have both been in fights where they kept a shouter in the back. Right. Who would be like, you know, left side advance or whatever. Uh, you, You get much more... If anything goes wrong with the top person, the whole thing falls apart. Right. But uh, you can get much more at-the-moment instructions and communication going that way. Word. No, I dig that. I, I when On the field, at least, I think I tend to lead like a quarterback mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. We huddle up, and I say, okay, 
uh, we're going to basically run this play. You know, turkey feathers, you're going to go deep left. Oh, yeah. Uh, thumbs, you're going to, like, kind of maintain center and make sure that we're cohesive. Um, and just kind of give brief roles, like you say, but also kind of present a plan in which they come together. I, again, every plan needs to be flexible. It can't be one of those things of, okay, and then you're going to do exactly this, and then this person's going to do exactly this, and because no, you don't know what your opponent is going to do. How you and I lead is actually extremely similar, partly because you and I have been bouncing off each other for 15 years now in this sport. Learning from one years another. Now. Yeah. yeah, being like, oh, that was... I'm going to steal that. That was good. Uh, and honestly, best advice I can give you if you're trying to figure out how to lead is the same way of learning how to fight. Watch other people and go, oh, that worked really well. I should remember that. Or like, oh, man, shouting did not go. Being mean is not working. No, yeah. I mean, there's a time and a place for an aggressive voice. And mm -hmm. if, if you're if we're on a, a massive field and there's a lot of noise, I'll definitely get my drill sergeant voice on to make sure that I get heard. My always eternal friendly reminder that Aggressive does not always mean mean. Right. And yes. make sure you know the difference between those two before you go for aggressive. Sure. Other things I've learned the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, that's absolutely true. Like when I do it, it's usually like one of those critical moments mm -hmm. of if we don't, we could be overrun. But if we do, we can turn the line. That is that is very different than like, listen here, you... No, it's usually like, I watched way too many Civil War movies, so I usually shout something like, pour it into them, boys, or something like that. <laughs> it works. I it love works. it so much. <laughs> if, it, if, it, if the shoe works, no, wait a second. If, if the shoe, nope. If the shoe fits, wear it. That's the one. We're going to go with that. <laughs> something about glass houses and ships or something like that. Glass houses would be terrible. That, that didn't... Yeah. That's not important to this episode, but yeah. anytime I've ever seen a class house, I'm like, that doesn't look like a fun place to live. No, yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's like even apart from if there's a earthquake or a meteor shower or whatever, you're not in a great place. Well, most people aren't anyways, but glass. Yeah, no, extra. Everybody yeah. can see. Like I don't I don't like being in a fishbowl. No, I'm only so fond of people in the first place. But we digress. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, again, we're kind of we're, we're talking about this idea of developing theory, though. Like we're we're trying to come up with plans that tend to work. Again, and and people that tend to work in good positions. Turkey Feathers is a good all-around fighter, mm -hmm. but he excels when he's put into those flanking positions where he can work at his leisure and and kind of pick his spots where he wants to go. He's very good in those positions, and that's a good method to keep in place. But it's a loose method. Yeah. Um, trying to come up with something super solid. I mean, we tried to in the in the DGMA. Yeah, and that's where we realized it didn't work for us. But right. again, I, and it is one of those things that if death were a real thing for us, mm -hmm. or if this was our job, the rules would probably be different. But you have to take into consideration the army you have, and right. in ours, it's weekend warriors. Yep, yep. No, and, and, and it's an excellent point. And and yeah, like you say, if if we were in the actual army. And everybody had like the, the very exact almost regimental training and everybody knew exactly what the other people were going to do and had drilled it 10,000 times because you were being paid or being yelled at too. Mm -hmm. That's entirely separate. To, we show up on the weekends <laughs> and we enjoy hanging out together and we're going to do some fighting. Yeah, because we tried that one too and that also did not work. But well, the first year of gladiators, yeah, you know, I was so obsessed with the idea of different formations and different uh, tactics that I had learned from history that I wasn't accounting for the fluid nature of the battlefield. Now, again, I was young in the sport. Yeah, I was you were only... 17, 18 yeah. at the time. I mean, it was it was a grand undertaking that 
I mean, Gladiator School is still around, so I'm not dissing. We myself. had very positive results from that. We did, but, <laughs> but I, that was partially because of the input of other people. Mm-hmm. You know, Toto was in charge the next year, or there was a kind of a loose conglomerate that were in charge the next year, but it became far more about the individual, like uh, in, increasing individual strength and increasing the individual's uh, confidence mm-hmm. upon the field to act. And at first, I was mad because I had made this whole binder for you guys, and it was all these, these different like formations and ranking structures. And the very immediately ignored. Well, not just ignored; it was lost. <laughs> like I came back the next year, <laughs> I and I was, about that. I was like, "Where's this book at?" And Kat was like, um, "Oh, you lent it to Kat." Yeah. Okay, so that one is. <laughs> yeah. I don't I reckon, know if you listen to this, Cat Cat. I love you. Um, you've yeah. lost everything I've ever lent you. Great guy. Great guy, but a zephyr, um, if, if I've met anyone. Leaf on the wind. Yeah. I think of leadership in some ways, or like once the battle engages, so still leadership, just that specific point, as kind of once you have let loose the arrow from the bow. Mm. Because once it has left the bow... You have no control what's happening. Even if your shot was perfect, you lined up, you did everything right, you did all of the muscle tone right. You don't know what if the wind's going to pick up, if the opponent is going to turn their head a little bit, which completely changes the angle of what might hit. Sure. Um, if they get attacked by a third person, if they like, there's so many things. So once the fight starts. You're no longer in control as much. And you can fire another shot and, like, you know, change stuff up. But there is... The amount that you're in control is only about 10%. Sure. And, I mean, that hits very uh, firmly on a point that Klauswitz makes uh, several times, which is that when it comes to one-sided activity... Because last episode we were talking about how things can be quantified. Mm -hmm. And when we're starting with theory... We're trying to work with things that aren't necessarily ephemeral, but we can actually sit there and be like, okay, one, two, three, uh, it's right there. And in this, again, we can do pretty well in organizing ourselves from a one-sided point of view. Uh, with one-sided activities, of course, whatever practice we're putting in, whatever kind of gear we're buying to try to, or, or even with you know, 40K, the models that we're putting down and the, the different stratagems that we're planning on, even with all of that, that comes into question the second that the battle happens because it's all one-sided. When I'm sitting here planning a list, I can try to figure out how it's going to play out in my head. When they go left, I'll do this. And then you're like, they didn't go left. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Or, or, you know, somebody brings something you didn't expect. Turkey Feathers, for instance, has been bringing this particular unit, uh, Eradicators, to each of our games. And it has completely changed up how I need to fight him. Because I used to just do a couple of vehicles and and maybe do a vehicle-heavy list and go against him and do just fine. But now he's got some pretty serious answers for my vehicle-heavy lists, the yeah, ones that weren't there before. They went, that didn't work. Yeah, um, yeah. and so, so eradicators are like anti-vehicle weapons, because he was doing mostly infantry, if I remember. Yeah, I mean, and, and he was, when he was doing Blood Angels, he was really trying to do them thematically, a lot of Sanguinary Guard, a lot of Death Company, and while those are good units, they also don't fulfill a whole lot of battlefield roles. They're mm-hmm. not great against um, heavies. And so this uh, it, this um, introduction of the Eradicators is somewhat against character because he's normally obsessed with the speed. The speed was really about. But now that he's slowed down his play a bit and he's using a bit more dreadnoughts, using a bit more of this, this heavy firepower, 
uh, it's a force to be reckoned with. And he's still using the attack. Like, he's still utilizing the idea of moving quick when he needs to and where he needs to. But the forces are far more balanced. And so he's a serious threat at this moment. I love how much that sent that paragraph there just perfectly tracked his Belagarth career at the same time. Fair point, yeah. <laughs> no, and, and yeah, I mean, he's, he's a fan. He learns very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and... It was it was one of the frustrating things about teaching him. Again, there was a year, maybe maybe two, where we were significantly better, and then very quickly he was going up at a very fast arc, and we had to play catch up. Yeah, and then now he's significantly better than me. I'm just good enough that I can make him work for it. And, um, and, and that's uh, I, I mean we're also out of practice. Oh yeah, uh, not to say he's not good, but you know we'll we'll get better when oh, we get yeah. more. <laughs> <laughs> well, and my style shifted since I went primarily spear. Sure. My one-on-one fight is completely different anymore because I'm like, all right, I'm using my secondary style. Let's do this. Sure, sure. And, and again, that shifted too because your focus, mm-hmm. your what you were going for has changed. And so the way that you're going to fight him, even if you switch back to the other style, you haven't been using it quite as much yeah it's not as intrinsic right it's in the same way that when i fight him when he's not sword and board suddenly i'm like oh i feel a lot more confident about what's happening right now sure because that's one of his uh well that and archery like mm-hmm. he, he, can, he can i got nothing on him on archery that's <laughs> i wear a helm on <laughs> yeah i know that's why i make so many helms because of turkey feathers yeah, that's not insignificant <laughs> um he has shot me in the mouth many times and i have fake teeth now so not from that. no no not from him from crashing my bicycle when i was five and then having to get them repaired just but, the way you said that yeah like, no i understand it blasted the teeth out of your face i'm sorry man we're in the last like hour of my work weeks so. <laughs> no i get it i get it i mean i don't because we're like this is my morning yeah no we had a hundred percent opposite schedules <laughs> But Turkey Feathers does present a really good point in the fact that because he is so good, and I mean, he, he will tone it down for new people. Mm-hmm. Like he, he no, no, he's not a jerk. He's... But still, there's that idea of when you go up against somebody that good for the first time, like when we're recruiting uh, from the campus or when we're recruiting from the, uh, the high school, when you go up against somebody who's that fast and that practiced and that skilled, that emotional quality comes into play again. The, the idea of... Especially for newer people, like mm-hmm. because they're they're sitting there looking at this, going, "When did he move? How did he move?" I, yeah, I'm not I even know, sure what happened. I know <laughs> that I'm dead, but I don't really know how that. Yeah, and and that can I can play. You don't really know how you're gonna um, react to those situations until you're actually in them. Well, and I mean that's something I watch very closely when we're recruiting, of watching how someone handles dying like that when they were like. If they kind of laugh and are like, whoa, I'm like, okay, that person might be okay one way or the other. Right. One person reacts badly to it. I'm like, that person's not going to stay. Mm-hmm. And when someone goes, how did you do that? I'm like, that's the person to talk to. <laughs> right. um, and I mean, there will always be places that like frustrate you. I'm not saying you can't get annoyed when someone just wrecks your day. Sure. But if you can keep up some level of like, show me that move, it will serve you so well in this sport. And going out with the humility and, and knowing one of the, the breakthrough moments for me when mm-hmm. I actually really started to learn was going out with the full knowledge that I was going to die. Or in 40K, going out with the full knowledge that I was going to lose. And 
then it wasn't on my mind as much. And I started winning more because I wasn't focused so much on not losing because I knew that I was going to anyways. The, the, the numerical odds at that point, especially with as inexperienced as I was, uh, that was probably going to be the state, the state. Well, and it leads, going in knowing that, being able to accept that, leads to one of my favorite feelings in Belagarth, actually, which is one side or the other, like you either lose terribly or you win wonderfully and the losing party goes that was awesome right and like the first time you do that you're so it's it's a very freeing feeling you're like you that was super cool and the other person's usually like hey, thanks man like right try this like or whatever and then once i started being able to do that i start notice it starting to happen to me more often too like i got good enough to be able to do the cool thing and other people being yeah well, again, like you're not getting bound up on your emotions. You're not mm-hmm. sitting there being like, oh, I hate that move or that person. You know, they they hurt, they they hit me and I wanted to win. Meh, 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 meh. No, you're, you appreciated what was going on and then you moved on. Yeah. And you can have that competitive, not going to let you do it again. Right. But that was really cool. Um, and you can still be competitive and have this kind of style. Like we, we do pretty well in mm-hmm. being laid back. The most competitive people in the community do pretty well and they're laid back like i i was fighting gallon at a tournament one time and i don't know if he was off or if i was on or it just happened to be the way we fought but i ended up beating him and he wasn't mad i mean he's one of the the older fellas in the ebf they're a hyper competitive group and he is one of the better members but he wasn't sour he no he was like a job but didn't throw his sword down he went oh nice stab and then we walked <laughs> off the field uh the people who get the most uptight about it or the ones most likely to burn out and the ones sure. re- less likely to stay in the hobby. And I assume it's the same in 40K. If you're going to flip the board, one, you're going to break your models and that's going to lead to a whole different set of problems. But mm-hmm. uh, Or break their models and that's even worse. Yep. Um, but you're not going to stick around because you're not going to have fun. Right. And, and, and that's exactly right. Even when I'm watching battle reports or, or looking at the, the play from tournaments... Yeah, I mean, there, there are people getting frustrated. And again, they're usually the lower level people who are psyching themselves out with these quote-unquote defeats. But like when I watch, I, I bring him up a lot, but that's because I love his play style. But Nick Nanavati, he doesn't throw his models. He's not a powder when it comes to this. I mean, mm-hmm. he rarely loses, but the sensation is not super, un- he doesn't wig out. And that's part of the reason why he's well-liked. I mean, he's a great player. But he's also a cool person who keeps his who keeps his cool, and I think that's one of the reasons that he keeps winning. He doesn't get held up, or if he does lose, he says, "Okay, I'm going to look at this situation, analyze it logically, and make these tweaks to either my strategy or to the army itself." And then he comes back st- stronger for it. Mm. Didn't shoot himself in the foot by getting all salty about the loss. And this is not to say that you're never going to lose our temper, or that we don't okay. get mad, or okay. that you know I have. One of my first shields had a bite mark in it the size of my mouth because <laughs> I got really mad. I went all berserker on it. freaking bit part of my shield off. <laughs> I'm not proud of it, but I've done it. Um, no, I, and, and yeah, I mean, you can be very experienced in this. And again, you get a smarter. Something hits your hand just wrong or you take a nose shot that smarts and... Yeah, might pout a little bit. Or, you know, the other day in 40K, I consider myself a pretty gracious loser mm-hmm. and a pretty gracious winner but turkey feathers blew me off the board so fast 
And I got salty. I'm not ashamed to admit that I, I definitely got salty about it. It happens. It's in the same way of you take a groin shot and they're like, oh man, are you okay? And I'm like, I need you to go away. <laughs> just for just for 30 seconds you to can, a minute. You can come talk to me in like two minutes and we'll be fine, but I need you to leave right now. Um, so it's not that you're not going to feel emotions over the time. It's how you deal with those emotions that are the important part. And bringing it back to the center. Mm-hmm. You know, not, not remaining super emotional for too terribly long. Um, being on tilt. Yeah. And I mean, we've kind of been discussing this as in the way of being a cool player or like a good member of the community, but it's going to be true in the fight too. Yeah. You are going to have moments where the adrenaline kicks in and you're, ah, but like, if you go that wild monkey the whole time, eventually you're going to get stabbed somewhere where it hurts because you're all off balance. And you burn out quickly as well. Like bringing energy to the field is awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, being uh, happy to be there, being energetic, being focused. These are good qualities, but to be too exuberant in this, to pour too much energy into one individual fight or one individual round, yeah, we're not going to last the entire day at that rate. There was a guy at Chaos Wars, and this is years ago, because I think we were still at Silverbell. Like, this is five plus years ago. The golden days of Chaos Wars. That probably we would hate as mid-30-year-olds. Like, I'm tired and dirty. But... I like flushing toilets. I hold no apologies. Yeah. But they, they they won the, like, best death that year. But it's because I watched them, like, full body throw themselves at someone and just get thrown sideways. Oh, yeah. And you could see the whiplash as they're... And everyone's like, that was so cool. And they were, like, living it up. And I'm like, man, that was awesome. One, do not get me wrong. But two... You are going to destroy your body if you do that more than, like, a year or two. You can call me out by name if you want to. I was not talking about you specifically, (laughs) but realizing halfway through the sentence that I remember the year you won Best Death, and I also remember the back pain that followed. Yes. Yeah, it was... It was just like you're saying, Thumbs. Like, I was throwing myself into things, just getting flung places. And, And you know what? At the time, I was young enough to do so without a whole lot of negative consequence long-term consequences yeah you were like 22 if i remember did i need about a week of ibuprofen afterwards absolutely but and if we did it now we would need a year um if if i did it now i'd be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life (laughs) okay i would need a year you'd need a wheelchair we are in different places in life but uh, yeah no no none of that none of that no more well so I think we could keep talking about this subject forever. Easily. Easily. Half because there's a lot to cover here, and also because I haven't seen you in forever, and as the digressions in this interview have gone... uh, Or the, like, hour and a half before we started recording. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But we do have to finish up. But I thank you again for coming on. Anytime, bud. Always love it here. And I will absolutely hit you up for that again. Uh, But for the rest of us, we are going to move into our next phase of the French Revolutionary Wars. next stop in our study of the French Revolutionary Wars is this transitional period between 1792 and 1793. 1792 was a big year. Of course, France had drawn a lot of attention to itself and and proven a lot of people wrong. Uh, The focus of Europe had now been kind of shifted 
into that direction. And the, the Parisians, of course, couldn't be happier. The mood in Paris was one of triumph. They had had some very quick conquests. You know, after Jemaps, Belgium fell. They had taken the Rhineland, Savoy. You know, this, this was a very, had been a very good campaign in various ways. And it had led to this amazing national feeling of, again, triumph. But very quickly, they began to realize that this war had no real aim. Again, they had, they had kind of moved out. Of course, the Rhineland had been taken after the Prussian retreat. They had moved um, to the north and to the east accordingly to protect their interests and to kind of back people up off of them. But as they continued going past the defensive point, there was no real war aim involved at first. So the National Assembly started to come up with some. And there were two that really rose to the top during this time. Two uh, excuses for as to why war was being conducted and why it was moral to be conducted. The first one of these was to establish national frontiers. And these natural frontiers, of course, would consist of some sort of, of geographical barrier that makes sense. You know, that, that is a... Uh, a good measuring line rather than something that is just sort of ambivalent. Oh, yes, you know, this tree to this tree. Oh, oh, it might go away sometime. We might go back and forth and have these border disputes. But the idea was let's have some solid lines. You know, instead of the Rhine on one side, just the river right there. The ocean. Can't really go wrong with that as a border. And then the Alps, another excellent border. And so they were hoping to push out and achieve these things. And then the other good excuse that they came up with was the Edict of Fraternity. This idea that they wanted to provide military intervention to any nation that wanted it. Any nation where there were sons of liberty, people aching for freedom, they would come and provide military intervention was the idea. And of course there's some flaws with these, these aims for a war. First off, let's talk about the natural frontiers. First off, there's people in the way. There's already established cultures, uh, cities, ways of doing things that are now going to be included, annexed, really, by France. And, of course, they might have a thing or two to say about that. And there's also some issue with, for instance, using the Rhine. It's not really a good river for using that. It goes out to the delta. It's kind of hard to figure out which way is what. There's a lot of different tributaries. The Rhine isn't necessarily the best measure for a barrier. But again, we also come down to the fact that there's people in the way, uh, so they're not going to necessarily like that. The Edict of Fraternity had some errors too, because you know it basically was giving the excuse to invade any nation where there were people being like, hey, we'd like to try some of that revolutionary stuff. And so this basically was carte blanche. Basically, the National Assembly had issued a, a carte blanche. We can declare war wherever we want because we've got these natural frontiers as a motivator and the Edict of Fraternity as a motivator. So remember when all this started, way back when, uh, there was several episodes ago now, when the French Revolution first began and most of Europe did not care. Could not have been concerned. <laughs> We're not pushed in that direction. And now we are to a point where, as I said before, Europe very much cares. The spotlight is absolutely on France at this point because of what they've, not only what they've accomplished, which nobody thought they would, this, this new budding form of army, this revolutionary army. 
and accomplished so much where people did not think it was going to. It gave many people pause and, of course, was a threat, a serious threat, especially considering that it came with these implications, these extreme political implications that weren't just the conquest of land, but the conquest of the hearts and minds of the people, the conquest of an entire way of governing. The stakes were high. The consequences were high, and so people were paying attention. In particular, we have the British who have perked up. Now, again, they haven't really gotten involved. It was profitable for them to be kind of playing both sides there for a second. And, of course, the the Anglophobia that exists in France has kept them kind of at, at odds, but Britain hasn't really actively participated in what's going on yet. Well, that changes. And their desire to participate changes after Jemaps, the battle that we talked about last time, because that lets the French conquer Belgium and puts them within spitting distance of the Dutch Republic. In fact, it puts them all right on top of the Dutch Republic. And this was vital to British interests at this time, not just because of the location. Of course, it's right across the channel from Britain, and so it's in a great position to either harass or destroy fleets or whatever the case may be, they're right there. And their navy was was excellent. It was absolutely amazing. Arguably one of the best navies in the world. That was good because Britain was suffering. <laughs> Britain was suffering at the moment. They had lost quite a few ships. Their navy had suffered. And of course, their overseas possessions had been taken away. So the, the possessions that the Dutch had overseas were very much threatening the British possessions. And Britain was weakened at this time because, uh, you know, just a, you know, 20 years earlier, they had had the Revolutionary War to deal with, the American Revolutionary War, which had cost them a pretty penny. And so this was not a great place. You know, they had gone basically from talking about almost a, a, an alliance, certain diplomats and officials between France and Britain had been talking about a alliance, you know, kind of working together, or at least some sort of non-violence uh, or non-invasion kind of pact. But that quickly d- went away the second the British realized how close they were to a real threat through way of the Dutch Republic. But of course, the French realized this too. They know the importance of this. They're not blind to it. They also know the importance of Britain, whether or not they have possession of it or, or, or more strongly influencing it at the time. And so, of course, they were once according them as allies. At one point they were like, hey, you know, if we have one pe- person on our side, Britain might not be a bad idea. But once all this started to go down, they began to accuse the British of covert counter-revolutionary ops. You know, being like, oh, they're disrupting things and blaming them. And, you know, there's a good likelihood that there were agents who were doing just that. There was a whole lot going on. Again, there were great, there was a great deal of paranoia in Paris at the time, but you can be paranoid and still have people out to get you. you. (laughs) And that was very much what was happening. So, you know, the accusation may not have been entirely unfounded. But they're, of course, they're being a little bit hypocritical in this because the French are attempting to stir up the revolutionary spirit in the British subjects as well. In particular, in places like Scotland, where you had people who very much resented British rule, who were right there. So they're just going straight past. They're going right past the ruling class. They're going right past the priesthood and they're going straight to the people, trying to stir them up. That uh, national descent sort of idea. And so Britain is in. 
You know, they've, they've committed at this point now as well to opposing this, this revolutionary France and the expansion, the dangerous expansion that it is currently undergoing. Spain, who has been, we haven't really talked about them in a military sense because, you know, they hadn't quite gotten their army together to come uh, and invade, and then Valmy happened. And, and so they absolutely hesitated <laughs> because they were like, wait a second, this, uh, this uh, French army is a lot worse or a lot, or a lot better, let's say, than we assumed. So let's pump the brakes and kind of watch it for a second. But again, Spain had been very much an outspoken critic, politically speaking, of the revolution and of the new regime. Charles IV, who was the ruler of Spain at the time, was the cousin of Louis XVI, ruler of France. And he totally rejected the idea initially that Louis had anything to do with the signing of the constitution that led to the constitutional monarchy that existed for two seconds. Absolutely wouldn't have done it. He was, he was saying that his cousin had to be coerced, that there was no way that he would willingly sign that document, sign over his divine what right to rule. And Spain had encouraged all the violence that had happened in France, like all of it, all the invasions, all the talk about invasions. They were like, yeah, these are, these are rebels. These are criminals and they need to be hunted down. So, you know, Spain's talking a, a pretty big talk here. And again, they were very hesitant after Valmy went down, but they were convinced to come into the fight after the British offered them aid and after Louis XVI was executed in January of 93. And that was a big deal. Again, cousin of Charles IV. Charles was not pleased about this. And so we start to see this, uh, starting to see a theme here. <laughs> People kind of mad with France. Um, and then next, you know, remember that we had this issue when, when uh, Brunswick came in to try to make a stab at Paris. He was a representative of the Holy Roman Empire, but technically, technically... France had only declared war on Austria. And so when Leopold had kind of gotten out of the picture and they were going through this new elector process, the Holy Roman Empire itself was not at war with France. And it really didn't serve them to be. For a good portion of this uh, story that we're talking about, the Holy Roman Empire was actually pretty much removed from it as a whole because they weren't particularly involved with it. And it was pretty much mutually beneficial to not be at war with each other. But after the battle at Valmy, when of course the revolutionaries had flexed their muscles quite a bit, and after they had attempted to revolutionize the Rhineland, they had taken this area, of course, pushing back against the, the Prussians and uh, against Brunswick invasion, and not only had they occupied the Rhineland, but now they were trying to revolutionize it, really get the people into this idea, and that could not stand. Because again, we have this, this threat, and I cannot possibly convey how important this threat is to the old regime. You have folks who are very, very worried, very threatened by what is occurring, by these revolutionary ideals. You know, France was more or less somewhat successful in spreading them at first, but the threat of what they could do to the existing regimes if they really started to take hold. Remember, there were some places where the French invaded and tried to impose their revolutionary ideals where they just didn't stick. You know, the local population was entirely too conservative, entirely too loyal to the existing power structure for it to really matter. But you can imagine that a lot of people were pretty okay with this idea. You know, it, it, there would be a, a certain following, particularly amongst intellectuals, 
for these ideals. So again, it was good to quash it. These, all these various uh, countries, these various monarchies, were starting to look at this and understand the threat that it posed, not just in a military sense, not just in a, you know, defeating on the field like Volmy or Jemaps, but in, a, in an ideological sense, that they may not just lose their army, but the spirit of their country. So this is a big deal. So we come now to the spring of 1793. And... It is a fairly bleak <laughs> field for France, because again, you got France, who is on its onesie, and arrayed against it are, let's list them off, shall we? Austria, right, one of the first ones they declared war on. Prussia, and this is where that first little push had come from. Then you had the Sardinia Piedmont, remember when they had invaded into Savoy, this had made a, uh, an enemy out of this particular organization, these people. Uh, the British Empire was now involved and angry. The Dutch Republic, of course, being invaded and being coerced, they weren't necessarily happy with France either. Spain had stepped in, and now you had the Holy Roman Empire. Now, France was big. Let's just go into that for a second. Population-wise, France was big at this time. And with all these folks arrived against it, it was only two to three times more people than were in France. I mean, that's, that's still quite a bit of a gap, but it show, goes to show you just how big France was at this time and just how many people were involved in this particular country. Oh, and over the course of that year, all the Italian states entered into this war as well, except for Genoa and Venice. You basically had the entirety of Europe arrayed against France <laughs> at this point. But the French weren't really worried you know, they, they, had, uh, they had very few worries about the situation because they had done so well at Valmy and Jemaps. And they had a couple of things uh, working for them in, in terms of the way that they were approaching their perspective, their ideals concerning the war and the war aims. Firstly, they figured, as they had from the very beginning, that soldiers who were fighting for their revolutionary ideals, you know, liberty, equality, brotherhood, would easily beat mercenaries and the servants of despots. Obviously, people fighting with this revolutionary zeal would be better on the field than those who were really just there because of orders or conscription or money or whatever the case may be. And as we've seen, that absolutely plays a role. It absolutely, uh, you know, is a part of the, the equation for what goes on on the battlefield. But it's not everything. It was certainly what they were thinking, though. Again, Paris is absolutely um, just in a great way right now. Just, <laughs> they, couldn't, they couldn't be more pleased. So, their soldiers would obviously beat the soldiers of the other despotic regimes because they just, they had this uh, righteousness, basically, on their side. The other thing that they figured they had working for them was the fact that they were uh, all about the citizen soldiers, right? Everybody's being trained to be able to be in the military. And because of this, they're going to have an inexhaustible reserve of manpower. Again, we're talking about a massive population, and if every single person can be tapped to be a soldier, that means that they can fight and fight and fight and fight and not necessarily have that be a problem. And then lastly, you have the old regimes, and they believed that the old regimes would be subverted by domestic revolutions, that people would look over at what they had done overthrowing their rulers, establishing some sort of democratic 
ruling body like the National Assembly and want to copy it and say, hey, we want to get in on this whole freedom idea. Come on over and, and help us figure it out. And there were people who were. They were working closely with uh, folks who were trying to organize their own revolutions in their particular countries or, or states, right? Now, these ideas, these beliefs, would prove to be rather naive. Again, soldiers fighting for revolutionary ideals may be more motivated, but there is something to be said for numbers and training and equipment, which the French didn't always have the best of. They had great, great ones. Don't get, get me wrong. And the idea of citizen soldiers, right? This would be one thing if everybody was motivated to do it. If everybody in the country was super uh, patriotic in this way, had really bought into these ideals, then yeah, the citizen soldier idea would be great. You know, you got everybody being uh, on the same side, the same level going forward. But the political situation in France was very complicated. You know, of course, in Paris, they were very strong in the revolutionary ideal, and there were some other hot pockets of revolution around the country, but there was also a, a counter-revolutionary sentiment. You also had a very conservative rural population that weren't necessarily on board with the reforms that were being enacted in the cities. You started to see this, this growing divide in the ideologies that were, were, were kind of adopted by the country folk and the city folk. And this is actually going to lead to some big issues moving forward, but we'll get into that in a future episode. But this idea of having this, this force they could rely upon easily to come forward and be willing citizen soldiers, this had the flaw of being unrealistic, of not taking into account the moral qualities that we had discussed in section one. And lastly, this idea that the old regimes would be subverted by domestic revolutions, yeah, that would eventually be true. Europe is now a land of democracies. It eventually worked. Now, not necessarily in time to save their armies. You know, it was, it, it was a, <laughs> a progressive thinking idea. It was definitely an idea that would vibe with history, but it was an eventual sort of thing. It wasn't necessarily going to be overnight. And so because of this, France is going to have a hard time the rest of 1793. They're coming into 1793. Again, they've got Europe arrayed against them, Austria, Prussia, Sardinia, Piedmont, British Empire, Dutch Republic, Spain, Holy Roman Empire, all saying, get them, get France. And, and France had kind of brought it on themselves at this particular time. It had gone from a war of defense, of, of pushing out people who were trying to stamp out their regime, trying to stamp out their ideas, to a war of conquest and trying to change the ideas and change the ideals of other nations. And this drew a lot more visibility. If they had just stopped at, hey, this is our country, get out, or we're going to show you what we can do like at Valmy, that would have been one thing. They still would have been on people's uh, radar, I'm pretty sure, but I don't think that they would have had quite the same response in terms of uh, the forces arrayed against them. Because again, the, the big reason why they had this massive coalition kind of coming at them was because of these war aims that they had enacted and the hawks that they had in their National Assembly. Because there were folks who were all about the war. 
Like that is what they wanted. That was what their plan was from the very get-go. They were utilizing this, capitalizing upon this, this energy, this moving forward, uh, the hostile feeling, right? The hatred that the nation was feeling for everything that was not their particular system of government. And again, like using that as a, a reason to go forward, this idea of uh, militarily intervening in any country that, that did not abide by their ideals, this was also a huge threat. And so again, this wasn't a country just trying to defend itself. It was also trying to impose itself on its neighbors. And that was the issue. That, I think, was the, the big galvanizing moment. It wasn't the victory. It was the fact of, of what they planned on doing after that victory. It was the invasion of Belgium and eventually moving into the Dutch Republic. It was not just the invasion up to the Rhineland, but the invasion of the whole Rhineland as it was, and the attempt to revolutionize those people. There were issues here. And then, of course, the execution. They, they had absolutely gotten to a point, the, the fervor, the political fervor got to a point where they believed, I think, that the execution of Louis XVI would not have these kind of consequences. Again, they had history on their side. But this provoked, obviously. Marie Antoinette was a part of Austria. She was, she was a member of the Holy Roman Empire. Louis XVI had, was very well connected, again, Charles IV of uh, Spain, his cousin. And so they really shot themselves in the foot there. They kind of had a hostage up until that point. It's like, okay, everybody play nice because we have Louis XVI and he's fairly well connected in terms of European royalty. And so as long as you guys are playing nice, we'll play nice. That all ended when Louis XVI died. And suddenly not only did you not have the, the hanging hostage situation, but you also had a very good reason. You know, Spain had a very good reason to get involved at that point. Vengeance, right? So this is where we're going to stop for today. You know, I, I could try to slam in a bunch more information here at the very end, but I think that it would be better for us to explore it in the new year, right? And so we're going to actually talk about the spring of 1793, the furtherance of it, when we actually get to the next year. So I think that's kind of cool. But for the moment, let's talk real quick about that. We're going to be taking a short break. Uh, my wife and I are planning on traveling, and we're going to be, you know, seeing some family. And then we're going to be heading down to Battle for the Ring. So we're not going to have really a whole lot of time to record and put out material. Don't worry, it's not going to be that long. The next episode will be out probably January, like late January, early February time frame. So we're not taking that long off, maybe just about a month. So you miss an episode or two. But... After that point, we should have gotten a decent amount of interviews at Battle for the Ring to be kind of bringing you a more live idea of what things are like down there at the ground. Um, obviously, they're not going to be live because we don't have a live feed yet, but it will still be some good experiences from, again, the folks who are right there experiencing it in person. So we're looking forward to bringing you that. But I suppose uh, for this episode, I would uh, again like to thank you all for listening. It has been an awesome couple of years, and we're looking forward to many more. I wish you all a happy new year and hope that you and your loved ones are, are safe. And I look forward to seeing you in the new year. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. 
If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. <laughs>